we're thinking today about um, God being a triune God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God being Trinity, if you want. It's an incredibly difficult doctrine to not just understand, but to attempt to explain in some ways. Most definitely it's a mystery. And it seems that throughout history, man has always struggled to find language, to find words, to find expressions by, by which he can really make this doctrine clear and succinct and expressed to his fellow man. In his book, Everyone's a Theologian, uh, R.C. Sproul titled his chapter in the Trinity, Three in Person. And he's attempting to emphasize that, that God is one, yet he's three persons. So Sproul writes like this, the historic formula is that God is one in essence and three in person. He is one in one way and three in another way. That's how he's trying to express the whole triune God in that sense. You know, as a doctrine, historically, this um, this didn't sort of become respected, appreciated, approved, recognized, acknowledged as a doctrine until it was formally accepted by the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople in AD 325 and AD 381, respectively. So this is a doctrine that had to develop. People have always struggled to understand this. So within Christianity, we claim for that our God to, is forever one essence, which subsists, if you want, as three distinct persons. We're saying he's one, but he's three people. He's one, but he's three. So it's a, a kind of a, a bit of a, an unusual statement, an unusual belief. But we're called to believe this. Uh, we're called to believe this about the character of God himself. And the only way that we can actually believe this is by faith because it's so so difficult to get our heads around. We have to believe that what God says about himself is actually true. And we can only do that by discovering what he says about himself in accordance with his word, the Bible. We can't go to other sources. We have to go to the Bible to see what God says about himself right there. Now, notice what he says about himself in Job 38, verses 4 to 7. And he's kind of speaking with Job, with mankind here. And he's He's asking a few rhetorical questions, a few challenging questions to mankind. He says, were you there when I led the foundation of the earth? Of course not. Of course you weren't there. Tell me if you have understanding. Um, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You're bound to know those things because you claim you know everything, is what God's saying to man here. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who led its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who did that? So God's saying it was himself. He did that. And that'll become a little clearer later on. <clears throat> and his point to man is this. You weren't there whenever God was creating. And as we look at scripture, we can see that the triune God um, is always being expressed in scripture. When we begin at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read this. Then God said, God speaking, let us, he goes plural. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So there's a plurality right, right away there where God is speaking about creation. In the New Testament, we read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, Pater, uh, the Word, Logos, the Holy Spirit, Numa, and, the, and, and these three are one, says um, John. So it becomes quite clear that there's a, a, a relationship of three here working together. Now, in an attempt to help us understand and to appreciate the triune God, it might help us to realize this. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not 
the Holy Spirit. So there's distinctions, there's differences, but there's a massive unity somehow connected in all of this. MacArthur puts it like this. He says, each person of the Trinity, each person of the, the Godhead possesses the entire undivided essence of God. They've all got the essence of God in them. Every person in this Godhead, this Trinity, has got the essence of God in them. And this means that there are three distinct beings in the Trinity, yet these beings are entirely co-equal within the divine essence. So it's a very, very unusual relationship. Now, before we move on, I want to, I want to emphasize some Bible texts that represent the Trinity or, or help us get a, a glimmer of understanding of the Trinity, at least. So Matthew chapter 3, verses um, 16 and 17. Let me read that to you. Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's what we read there, right there. When Jesus was baptized, he went up. This is about his baptism. He went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him. So Jesus is being baptized, and he saw the Spirit of God ascending, uh, descending like a dove and coming down on him. So we've got Jesus coming out of the water, the Spirit of God descending like a dove on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, that's God the Father, with whom I'm well pleased. So we, we discovered the triune God, the Trinity, the three, three in person Godhead working right there together. Then we go over to Matthew 28, verse 19. So right to the end of uh, Matthew's gospel, where um, the Lord's about to send these disciples into the world. Matthew 28, verse 19. And we read, this is the Lord speaking to his disciples after he's been resurrected. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He represents, he brings in the whole Trinity there, the triune God, the Godhead is represented right there. Now, if we go over into the teachings of Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 4 to 6. Let me see if we can find that relatively quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. Here's what we read right there. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. So we've got the Holy Spirit, the one who gives the gifts there. There, Verse 5, there are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. So again, we see the, the, the triune God, the Godhead in ministry there, working together. Let's go over to um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, right towards the end of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Um, I'm just going to read verse 1. He gives a little context here. Um, Peter opens, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad. These are believers that have been scattered, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the, the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, we have that triune, that trinity, that Godhead, that three-in-person God at work right there. Now, you might take that information as a believer. You've heard that before. And you might say to yourself, look, look I, I believe that. Of course, I believe that. I accept that. So what? So what? Well, as a believer, it's essential that this doctrine moves to a place of not just remaining as a doctrine stuck on paper, not as a doctrine just that we hold in theology or a doctrine that we say this is somehow important in my life, but rather this is something that has to impact your life. This is something that has to change your life, motivate your life to become more like Christ. So as we enter our study of this most amazing attribute of the character of our great God. Let's take on board these comments from the theologian 
Kenneth Grinder. Here's what Grinder writes. He says, off with your shoes, please, for the Holy Trinity is Holy Grind. So if you're going to study this, get prepared. Away with finely figured syllogisms and, uh, and ordinary arithmetic. Here, logic and mathematics do not suffice. They're not going to cut it. The need is rather for a listening ear, an obedient heart, wrapped adoration, a careful engagement with the Holy Scriptures. That's what Grinder says. That's how we get an understanding of the Trinity. So a study of the Trinity is going to help us appreciate the salvation that we enjoy as believers. We say we're saved. We believe the Bible. We believe in Christ uh, as our Redeemer. Well, this is going to help us enjoy the benefits of our salvation. Now, notice how the triune God is working in your life. This is important because you want to see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, God the Trinity, working in your life. Firstly, God the Father ministers to you in the relationship of his being your perfect father. Every human, every human father, no matter how good a father they might be, falls short of the mark of being perfect. Uh, we get it wrong. We're troubled by sin. We mistreat our children. We do the wrong thing by them often. We maybe don't intentionally want to do that, but it happens because we're human and we fall short of God's standard. So we never get the whole parenting thing completely right. But our Heavenly Father, God, is absolutely perfect. So much so that the Apostle Paul writes of his relationship with you in First Thessalonians 5.23, where we read, May the God of peace, may God minister to you and sanctify you, make you holy completely, complete you in holiness. May the God of peace um, make you complete in holiness is what he's saying there. And because the triune God loves you as his redeemed child, he wants to enable you to, to grow up spiritually into the holy being that he has planned from eternity for you to be. But before there was anything formed, he wanted you to be this holy being. He planned that and he intends to make that happen in your life. Now, what might this look like practically for you, for me, in respect to our, our everyday living, the lives that we live just normally, naturally, every single day? What's it going to look like? Well, I want to quote from John Piper here. Uh, Pastor Piper writes, um, uh, speaking about this, and he, he he writes this way. And as I read his thoughts to you, I want you to honestly reflect as to where you're at with some of these thoughts, if you can do that. Let me read them to you. Piper says here, sin is treasuring anything above God. Sin is treasuring anything above God. Holiness is the opposite, opposite of sin. Therefore, treasuring God above uh, all things is the essence of holiness. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, if our hearts make peace with the disposition that says our greatest treasures on earth are more precious than Jesus, then Piper says we are not Christians. If our greatest treasures on earth are more precious to us than Jesus, then we're not Christians. Now, that's a thought that causes you to think. That's something that causes you to really uh, try and figure this whole thing out here in a very uh, reflective and serious manner. Now, if we treasure anything above God, it, it's sin. That's a really heavy thought. I want you to think, do you treasure anything above God? Because if you do, it's sin. And notice where the author to the Hebrews takes this thought. He writes to the believer, referring to us as a sheep, possibly with the intent of 
comparing us to, to sheep who always follow the directive given to them by their shepherd. Uh, the, the shepherd speaks or directs the sheep, and the sheep respond positively and responsibly. We read in uh, Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, these words. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> God has equipped you as his redeemed to do what, whatever his will is for your life. He's equipped you. He's enabled you. You're capable of doing his will. So I want to ask you today, I want to ask you directly, and I have to ask myself as well, are you doing God's will? Am I doing God's will? Are we living the will of God as expressed by God to our lives today in our life? Now permit Pastor Piper to help us once more. He writes the following in his book, Providence. Listen to what he says here. Christians plan. They, they do not coast. At the end of Paul's life, he was still planning to go to Spain. That's recorded in Romans 15, 24 for us. As our plans take shape, we can think like fatalists or Christians. We can say, if I'm lucky, <clears throat> I will live and do this or that. Uh, by chance, I may live and do this or that. As fate may have it, I will live and do this or that. Or we can say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. Now, we know which one we should say, but he continues here. Luck and chance and fate are nothing. They are not a foundation for any plans. They can do nothing because they are nothing. They are simply words that describe emptiness and meaninglessness. But when you make a plan and say, I plan to do this if the Lord wills, you build your life on an unshakable foundation, the sovereign will of God, his pervasive providence. So you're establishing your life on what God wants, what God will permit in your life. So your perfect father, the triune God, God the Father, has the intention of glorifying himself through your life by how you live your life for him through the doing of uh, his will in your life. That's what God the Father wants to do through this whole triune ministry to you. Now, secondly, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he lives and ministers as the head of the church. That's his position. That's his responsibility. <clears throat> Previously, Jesus gave up his life on the cross uh, to sanctify, to, to make holy, to cleanse his church so that in a time yet to be, he will present his church to himself in all of her splendor, in all of her fullness. Ephesians 5 tells us that his church, that you and I, the redeemed, will be uh, presented to Jesus, our Redeemer, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's not going to be any imperfections or impurities about us. Jesus loves his church. And because the head of the church, uh, being Jesus, loves his church, then we, the redeemed, his redeemed, we're called to love his church too. So how will the how will this church and this directive by God, the Son, uh, as part of the triune God, how is this going to impact your life? and my life. Well, the story of the church began with a, a handful of people who were committed to following his teachings. And two millennia later, two millennia plus later, that group have grown phenomenally throughout the world. It is so much bigger today, so much greater and more impactful than what it once was. The early church were amazed at God's power and authority as expressed to their, their world through ordinary people such as themselves. They were just in shock and awe that, that these ordinary people 
had this authority and this power. And those early converts, they, they loved and they cared for one another. Uh, another, uh, so much so like, uh, so much so that like Jesus loved and cared for them. And they also shared their possessions with one another. I think you could say of them that they held no treasure above God himself. God was their greatest treasure. There was nothing else. It was God they wanted to glorify. They lived differently to their world. And, and people living in Jerusalem were somehow attracted to them. So much so that 3,000 people in one day got saved and joined the church, gave up their old lives and joined this, this group that seemed to be going somewhere. So what has happened? What has happened to the church since Acts chapter 2? Has the, the dynamis gone? Has the, the dynamic attraction, where's it gone to? What's happening with the church? We're always complaining and saying people don't like us and so on. Well, Driscoll and Bashirs in their book Doctrine suggest the following. They suggest that the church may have exchanged mission for institution and may have wandered from Jesus' commands for his people. Uh, they write the answer is a, a simple and a humble and a continual return to, to Scripture to rekindle the love of God the Father, uh, life of God the Son, the leading of God the Spirit in order that we be the church for the sake of the world to the glory of God. That's what they're suggesting the church needs to get back to. I think that's a good suggestion. And they further attempt to summarize the, the words of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, expressing how the church should live. So they write, the local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what the church is. It's the believers coming together and expressing Christ to be their Lord. They continue in obedience to scripture. They organize under qualified leadership, that is those approved by God, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. That is, we're taking this message to the world. We're living biblically. We're expressing the ways of Christ correctly. Uh, that's what God the Son, representing the triune God, wants you to be involved in. And that is how he wants the church to impact your life in response to the teaching and directive of the three-in-person God that you claim that you love. He's building his church. He wants you to be part of that development, that building. Then we come to God the Spirit. Now, God the Spirit is, is impacting your life as part of the triune God by his transforming you into the image of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's changing you, transforming you in that way. Paul writes in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all, that is every believer, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this, For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he's saying we're being transformed. We're being changed here. We're, we're, being, we're developing into the people that God wants us to be. Now, this is not an immediate or magical happening. It's a, a progressive occurrence uh, on your life journey with Jesus. It's, it's going to be a progressive, slowly developing thing. It's the work. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, working in you. And it all begins at the moment of conversion, the moment whenever you got saved, the moment whenever you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Paul writes in um, 
2 Corinthians verse 5, 7, chapter 5, verse 17. If, if anyone, if there's any person who is in Christ, if this person has become a believer, then he says he is a new, a new creation. He or she, they are a new creation. Any person who is in Christ. So if you know Jesus, then you're a new creation. You're no longer the person you once were. You're now moving to being the person he wants you to be. He also tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works. So God's working in us. Jesus is working in us. The Spirit's working in us. The Word of God's working in us to make us be this, this uh, person, uh, these people that will do good works. We do the good works because it glorifies our Father. From Colossians 3, verse 10, we're called to, to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator being Jesus Christ. So you're putting on a new person and, and your knowledge is becoming like the understanding of Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus. Your knowledge is changing as you study the word, as you pray, as you mature in Christ, as you listen to messages, you grow, you're developing. And Paul continues in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 29, to encourage the believer with the, the work of God, the Spirit, and the lives by writing, those whom he foreknew, that is before there was anything, he knew you, foreknowledge he also predestined that is he destined them before there was anything to be conformed to the image of the son before there was anything you were planned to be conformed to the image of christ by god the father by god the son and by god the spirit and god the spirit's working in your life today to enable that now all of this is possible because the triune god has chosen to minister to you for his glory with your transformation. Pastor and author Dan Ortland uh, writes of this in his book, Deeper. Uh, I want you to listen as to how he explains your transformation, my transformation. He says, the Holy Spirit is how God gets inside you. Spirit of God lives in you. If you are a Christian, you're permanently indwelt by the Spirit, permanently. And if you are permanently indwelt by the Spirit, then you've been supernaturalized, he suggests. It's not just you anymore. You, you aren't alone. You have a companion living within you. He is there to stay, and he provides everything you need to grow in Christ. The Spirit provides everything that you need. He continues, if we choose to stay, and if you choose to stay in your sins, you won't be able to stand before God one day and tell him that he didn't provide you with the resources. Because the Holy Spirit lives within you. That's the resource you need. He takes the Word of God and gives you an understanding of the Word of God so that you can grow and mature and become like the Lord Jesus Christ, the one you're being transformed to become like. Now, as we pray today, I want you to pray a simple prayer, but it's a, it's a big prayer. Ask God the Father to, to parent you for his great eternal glory. Lord, Father, I need, I need a parent my parents have let me die in different ways. I need a parent that can really show me your glory. He'll do that. Invite God, the Son, your Savior, to enable you to be a blessing and encouragement, and encouragement to the church that he's building. Lord, I want to be that blessing. Will you please help me be a blessing? Not a hindrance. I don't want to stop. I want to be a blessing to the church that you're building. I want you to call on God the Spirit to continue his transforming you changing you, transforming your life into you becoming the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when people look at you and people look at me, they, they actually hear and see Jesus. They, they, they get our words are like his words. Our actions are like his actions. We're steering people to a relationship with him. So I trust that you can pray that prayer. Let me pray 
a prayer for you, and then you can continue to pray for yourself. Father, I just ask that um, you would minister graciously uh, to all of us as our eternal Father. Lord Jesus Christ, I would just ask that you would continue to lead us and direct us in our, our, our task, our work, our ministry within the church that you're building. God, the Spirit, I ask you to continue to transform us, each one, into the image of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we ask all of this through the authority of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, be glorified in us, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for your time, folks, and uh, trust you have a great week and keep pressing on and keep living for him. Thanks.